Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. Welcome back to another episode of Reciprocity Podcast. Today, we have Natalie Kesar. She is a photographer in New York City, but works all around the world. In fact, just got back from a trip to the Ukraine. Um, this was actually a listener-suggested interview, so that was really helpful. Ben Rasmussen out in Colorado uh, suggested uh, I interview her, and I'm really, really excited for this. Uh, she's worked for some amazing publications, Rolling Stone Magazine, New York Times Magazine, Wall Street Journal, YouTube, Google, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so pretty amazing. And if I'm correct, I believe you're the second Canon Explorer of Light to be on, which is also really, really cool. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Natalie, how is your afternoon? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nick, I, I cannot complain. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, so I actually don't know any of your backstory. So I thought maybe we'd kind of start at the beginning and see how you got into photography, where you went to school. I stumbled upon maybe a little bit of Pratt in there on your bio, but uh, I'd love to hear how your career started. Um, well, I think, I think like so many other photographers, my career, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, when I was younger, I was really into art and I was really into activism and I eventually ended up studying painting at Pratt in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, was really trying to figure out a way to like make art about social justice and really interested in sort of history and the making as a concept and current events. Um, and was like trying to do that with fine art and then with illustration. Um, but sometime during my time studying painting, I, I developed like a big crush on photojournalism. I started sort of looking at a lot of, of photography and newspapers and cutting out newspaper clippings and hanging them around my studio, not as literal reference for my paintings, but as like sort of inspiration and thinking about the places that I was interested in and the stories that I was interested in. Um, but I, I thought that you had to be really smart and academic and, uh, have a path that I had not taken. So I didn't really think that it was an option, but I started to sort of have this semi-abstract dream in the back of my head. Like it would be so amazing to be a photojournalist, but I think that you probably have to have degrees and know-how that I don't have. Um, so funny, because like as a photo, someone who went to school for photojournalism, I would think you need all these crazy degrees to be like a painter. You know, <laughs> like, I like kind of dabbled in painting and illustration before I found photojournalism in college. And like, I thought like, oh, well, I'm going to have to have a master's from Yale if I want to be like a famous painter or something like that. Yeah, no, there's like the, the big secret is that credentials don't mean anything. <laughs> I think, so that, I mean, not to discourage people from studying because there's so many other things that I kind of in retrospect wish I had studied and sort of still study in my spare time. But, um, but yeah, uh, I basically graduated art school, was working at an art dealership by day and waiting tables by night and realized somewhere in there that the fine art world was cool, but I didn't want to, it wasn't, I didn't want to be alone in a studio for my whole life. And I, I also didn't, my definition of making it wasn't going to be 
selling paintings for millions of dollars, which is a fantastic definition of making it, but it like, it wasn't what, it wasn't what motivated me. I really wanted to see the world and I really wanted to witness history in real time. And I, I really wanted to make a difference, which of course, like spoiler alert, I'm not sure how much of a difference photojournalism makes, but that's a quandary we can get into. Um, but, uh, so I ended up eventually the restaurant I was working at closed down overnight. I went to work one day and there was a sign on the door saying, you don't have a job. And I kind of took that as like a sign that I needed to transition and, uh, applied randomly for a photojournalism internship on Craigslist with a couple of amazing photographers. That's right. Uh, Sorry, it's Craigslist. <laughs> Oh really? Is that how you started? No, I'm I'm teasing. I had never heard of anyone getting a photojournalism internship off Craigslist. So that's amazing. Well, it wasn't it wasn't like a you know internship with a paper or anything like that. I just I got an internship like assisting uh, Julie Plotner and Shaul Schwartz, who are two amazing photographers and filmmakers. And I kind of rolled up and was like, ah, I know stuff about art and like I make good coffee and I'll do anything and. Um, they really took me under their wing and mentored me. And, um, within a year I was freelancing, um, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I started permalancing for the wall street journal. I don't know how that happened. Thank you universe. Um, and from there, my career sort of progressed. That's so cool. I, I love, I love all, all parts of that, but I've, I've definitely, this is the first time in my career I've heard of anyone getting an internship remotely related to photojournalism off Craigslist. That's great. Although it was a different time. Craigslist used to be a much more prolific site and all that, but very cool. Um, yeah. I feel like it was like during this time when like, you know, New York creatives of all kinds were just kind of putting opportunities out there and, and I got really lucky. Like yeah. Julie, Julie asked me in the interview, when my birthday was because she was really into astrology which I am too and our birthdays were only a few days apart and on the strength of that she was like cool 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 like I like your stars you're hired that's me yeah (laughs) and that was my only credential like I had no qualifications really that's amazing so when you um so the fine art world and the photojournalism world, I think, in some ways seem very distant and very far apart, but are also in ways very similar. Like there's a lot of people like Ben who uh, definitely seem to pull from the fine art world. When you start to, I wouldn't say leave the fine art world, but shifted into this world of photojournalism, was there some things that you took from the fine art world into photojournalism, and, and, whether that be like a, you know, brass tacks kind of like networking thing or was there stuff that was totally surprising to you? I mean, what was that transition like? I mean, that seems like a pretty big shift. I mean, I don't know if I have ever really understood either world, probably. So, which I think maybe has been a good thing for me. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I sort of transitioned with, I was actually talking about this with a friend recently. I it never really occurred to me that I had to do very literal image making because the way that I thought about visually representing stories had been sort of created in a, in an art school that, you know, first in a sort of ab X fine art painting program. And then later, you know, having like, I, I eventually ended up focusing on illustration for the second part of my college. Um, And so I think that like 
I had a huge imposter syndrome transferring into photojournalism because like, you know, the secret about photojournalism is you sort of pick up a camera and you make a series of photos and they don't suck. And then you're freelancing. Like it's not rocket yeah. science to start. It's more rocket science to do it well. And it's not really that. rocket science ever, but like, um, <laughs> that's also true. It's never really rocket science, but I agree with exactly with what you're saying. Like you are objectively picking up a camera, going to a thing and making pictures that are at least, somewhat interesting or describe what happened yeah you know so I think um you know because I had no idea what I was doing I was definitely probably subconsciously you know placing the training that I had in the art world into this new context where I was like okay I need to tell the truth I need to be honest I need to like accurately reflect this thing and I need to get pictures of the thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but then I think in terms of how I was thinking about conveying emotion or impact or like, you know, composing strong images, I was very influenced by, by having studied painting and, and always been somebody that thinks a lot about light and color. And I think that ended up being really useful for me in terms of sort of creating eventually developing a style and an aesthetic voice. And I think, I do think that sometimes young photographers and perhaps photographers trained in a certain way or photojournalists trained in a certain way, get a little bit bogged down in like needing to take photographs of the literal thing and sort of like the picture of this and then picture of this and then picture of this. And since I had no idea what I was doing, I like never really got very good at doing that, which I think, uh, is probably a weakness, but also ended up helping me sort of differentiate myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I always think like there's so much that's just like process. That's what we learned at school was like, you know, there's a lot of process photography where it's like, hey, you know, this XYZ is happening. And the people go from step A to B to C. It's like Subway, you know, where it's like, well, what bread do you want? What meat do you want? What cheese? What lettuce? Like, and like that's how the photography always looks. And instead, it's like, you know, I think the biggest shortcoming of a lot of photographers is like not making photographs that evoke how a situation feels more so than what it looks like. Um, and that was something that I think when I reached out to you, I had said like you are in this very multiple somewhat troubling or traumatic or whatever word you want to use for some of the situations. And you're still finding a way that has a delicate understanding of like what people are feeling in that space or that situation, which is really awesome to see. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, I really, really hate the the subway sandwich. I think it's like I, th I I worry that if we go into situations as as artists, as documentarians, as journalists, whatever, um, I don't really see it. I feel like a lot of people think that there's some huge distinction between photojournalism and artists, and I actually don't see much of a difference, except that we are like obligated to make sure that our images are truthful, which is actually incredibly difficult because it's very easy to make an image that lies even without intending to. But like, if we, if you go into a situation as a, as a documentary photographer with a template in your head of the images that you're going to make, then you are already going to probably be inclined towards lying without realizing it because you're trying to fill a cookie cutter in your mind. And so yeah. I think it's really important to like, 
be really present and reacting to things rather than trying to make a certain like list checklist of imagery, which of course is difficult because all of us have jobs and like editors to appease and things that we know that we have to make. But I was, it's, it's, it, I was just having this conversation with a photographer friend of mine about like this thing that you hear all the time as a photojournalist. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. You're like, Oh, that's the picture. Like the picture is X, Y, Z thing. And people will sort of stand around and like debate like, oh, what's the picture of the day? And I always was like, what? Because to me, like, it's so subjective. Like there is no the picture, right? I mean, sometimes that develops, you know, in the course of history or, you know, some, it becomes very clear that there's some image that's like iconic. But I don't think that you can ever really predict that. And I think that when you try, you end up really screwing yourself over. It's it's funny to me because like you're 100 percent what you said earlier was so true that it's like without intentionally misleading, you easily can like mislead people with a photograph. And it's like I always think about that with pictures of like the political like a hearing of like the Supreme Court justices, you know, there's always been like, oh, this is like extremely representative. And it's like, was that representative or was that like the dwindled down second that, you know, then was spun as like the the you know, that was the moment that like defined the situation. And obviously this is by experienced people that are all probably right. But it's like, I think in ways it's like, well, there was probably several other like very important moments in that day. Or again, subjectively, depending on your own viewpoint, uh, being that every photographer and person there covering that has different viewpoints, like to a group of those people, that probably is the subject, the moment, you know what I mean? Versus like someone else coming in from another standpoint, which is obviously what's been interesting in the last four or five years with like new people coming to the table to tell these stories. And I think like, you know, especially when I see that you did work in Ferguson and things like that, like those protests are one of the first time we start to see different viewpoints and like in turn, different the pictures of the day, you know? Uh, and yeah, I, I just think it's super interesting what you just said about, you know, that, that it, there is no one the picture, but you're right. We all try to fill that box when we go out to shoot, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think like, that's like, it's such an important thing in terms of like thinking about how we make photography to not, you know, I mean, this is like super present in my mind, like coming back from Ukraine, that the value of having multiple perspectives and, you know, and, and this applies to anything, you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement here or I mean, really any other news photography situation is so often there's this sort of like FOMO mentality and herd mentality where everybody wants to get their picture of the same thing. And of course, again, you know, I'm out there working too. Like a lot of times you need to deliver your photograph of that thing the way everybody else does, or you're going to be in big trouble with your editor at the end of the day. And like, for sure. But the value of having multiple perspectives is not to have... 40 photographers collaborating the same thing always, but to have 40 different individuals out there really, really thinking about what matters and finding their own interpretations and looking in different directions. And, you know, and I think that that's like such an important way to think about making this thing. You know, I feel like there's sometimes I feel like in photography, like there's people that approach it as a sport and there's people yeah. that approach it as like an art form and like, and there's people that do both. And I think maybe I aspire to be able to do both and, you know, but that, you know, there's people that are like 
technicians and athletes and like always get their shot. And I am not a great technician, (laughs) Um, but like I, and there's an immense value of that because those are the people that are going to not miss history when like you need to get that, you know? But I think that sometimes when you've got, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult, especially in breaking news situations, which is where I really, I love to cover breaking news. Although sometimes breaking news is extremely painful, you know, it's those moments that are very, very hot and very difficult and very complicated where you need to be reacting really fast, where it's of huge value to be able to sort of step back and and think about what the hell do I actually want to say here? Um, yeah. It's so hard in those situations. That's like uh, definitely covering whether that be, you know, tornadoes, massive damages, protests, whatever. I have not gone overseas and done that jazz. But like whenever you're in those like high stress, high demand, get it now, for, you know, situation, it's like so hard to back up and be like, what am I actually like feeling? What am I seeing? What's going to explain this situation without just being the thing you know that's happening in front of me and um yeah man that that is a balancing act for sure yeah yeah totally i mean i've 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 tried to cultivate a habit of like in those situations you know because i feel like there's always moments where you're reacting and you're really gravitating towards something and you sort of start to get tunnel vision and just hammer the shutter and photograph something over and over and whenever i catch myself doing that for like a certain period of time I really try to cultivate the habit of being like, okay, all right, all right, you can stop pushing the button now. You got your shot. Step back, get out of this cluster of human beings, walk away, take a deep breath, and like ask yourself what you're doing, which is really hard. But I think it's a really, really important thing to practice so that you can get outside of that sort of like adrenaline moment where everybody starts to sort of do the same thing together. Yeah. And then sometimes there's, you know, situations where your your safety is at play and you're like, oh, I want to be around everyone else. Um, But I think that a a lot of us are guilty of just being like, okay, I'm here to do this. And even on something that isn't dangerous, like just kind of finding yourself following the same paths. And we're, uh, and also we're all somewhat similarly looking for the same things, you know, like I'm going to chase that, that light. If there's some, you know, if it's, if it's later in the day, I'm going to probably start shooting into that sunset or, whatever and so then you kind of find yourselves lining up the same way and stuff um but yeah so when backing up again so like you start freelancing you got you know permalancing with the wall street journal which is a great term uh what like how many years ago was this and like what was that transition into you know, making it, I guess, in the sense of like, there has to be a time when you're still questioning this decision, like, okay, I'm doing this. But like, what did I do? Like, was there a was there like a story or a tipping point where you're like, okay, yes, I made the right choice. Like, this is where I want to be or you achieve something or or something of that nature. Huh, I kind of feel like I have all of those feelings every day. (laughs) Like, I don't know if I've ever I feel like on any given day as a photojournalist, I have moments where I'm like, I love my job so much. This is such a privilege. I'm so grateful and I have no idea how I got here. And I'm so lucky to get to do this for a living. And like, you know, that same day, I'll like look at my bank account or like see something horrible happen. And I'm like, what am I doing? Terrible life choices. Should have been a painter, like should have been an accountant, should have been anything else. Like, 
what's wrong with me? You know, I, I, you know, I think like, that's one of the, I mean, there's so many, that's one of the things about like the idea of making it in this industry. I mean, look, like the photography industry and so many other creative industries is incredibly difficult. Um, the finances are really, really screwed up. We have huge labor problems and, you know, income inequality problems in this industry. There's a lot of exploitation going on by major corporations and a lot, you know, we don't have insurance. It's really hard to be financially solvent, even when you've quote unquote made it. So I think that's something that I like try to be really transparent about is that I've been incredibly lucky. I've had an amazing run. I would not trade the life experiences and the creative and journalistic experience I've had. And I look forward to doing much more. Um, but it, it never, it never gets easy. You know, like I never stop having imposter syndrome after I've finished any project. I'm terrified that I'll never get an assignment again. It's never been financially easy because we do not have job security. We do not get insurance. We are truly not well paid, you know? So like, I think that that's really important to just say out there to people who are struggling is that like, don't think that anybody, if if anybody who's a photojournalist is not financially struggling, they have a trust fund. So like, please like liberate yourself from thinking that you're doing something wrong. If you're not, if it's not a bit of a struggle. Yeah. I struggle with that so much. And I, I, the last several years, like when we talk about like, you know, we need to take care of new people coming in the industry and like all these things, like, wait a second, we're all screwed. Like none of us are doing all right. Like what, what planet are we on where any of us are doing? Okay. Like we have so many issues financially and like the amount of pay you get versus the amount of equipment you have to do on professionalism skills, like all that stuff is hard. And if you're in New York, it's obviously a busier market, but like as someone who lives in a second tier city and a lot of friends who do, like a lot of times these people won't call you for six months and then they, and then it's like, oh, are you ready? Are you ready to do something tomorrow? Uh, no, I'm actually working or I'm doing this. It's like, okay, cool. Call the next person on the list. We'll probably never call you again. And it's just like, it's like an, it's like an abusive relationship some days or most days, depending, you know. <laughs> most days. And, and that's, and that's what clients that like, I love and like value, you know, so it's hard out here. There's, there is that. Um, I think to answer your question in like a less abstract way, which I am in the habit of doing, I apologize, but like I, um, I had a bunch of good luck. And I think I also, I think I took a lot of in retrospect, pretty well calculated risks. Um, you know, like, I got, it was wildly lucky to sort of start to get to freelance for the Wall Street Journal in New York City. And that was kind of where I cut my teeth. And that was where I learned, you know, about filing on super tight deadlines and photographing four assignments a day and running around like crazy and like always get your picture and all of these just sort of nuts and bolts of how to be a photojournalist. And I'm really grateful for that sort of super concrete background and that time that I had to hone my skills and you get really consistent and develop my style. And I did that for about three years, starting in around 2010. Um, and I mean, and was starting to work a little bit with other clients, but mostly did, you know, and, and, the, and the way that I sort of started just for it, for those that for, for young people that are starting out, if it's useful, is I was cold calling like, 
tabloids like the New York Post and the Daily News and being like, can I, can I photograph for you? Here's my like crappy little portfolio of like local events and like little kind of mini stories that I had made about like cliches, like breakdancing in the subway or like whatever. So, you know, I mean, not the, not to knock breakdancing in the subway, but it was like stuff like that. Like young photographers were like, wow, you know, um, there's like a a bucket list of like things and it's just, yeah, it's like drag show kid with cancer breakdancing is a good one to add to the list. There's like, yeah, super important valid stories to do that I still believe in and it's like work that out, you know, but like I had sort of started to make a little portfolio like that with the guidance of Shaul and Julie, who I was interning for and was cold calling these kinds of papers that have incredibly exploitative rates. Like we'll pay you 25 bucks if we run your picture when we sent you there on assignment, which was like the kind of stuff I was doing at the very first. And then I luckily, Julie passed me an assignment for the Wall Street Journal, like early one Sunday morning when everybody was too hungover to take it. And I was too hungover to take it too, but I did anyways, cause I was thirsty. And that was how I got my first assignment. And that was how I started. Like the, then they started calling me cause I didn't blow it, which that day involved accidentally driving without a license through a toll booth and miraculously getting through. I mean, I should probably not say that on the record, but it happened. So, um, anyways, I did that for about three years. And during that time, and this is super important, um, for like young drivers standing, starting out, I was making my own projects like on my spare time. And that was, crucial because that was where I was developing a portfolio that was beyond just covering daily news so that I could pursue the kind of long form documentary projects that I aspired to do. And so that I, because that was the only way that I was going to get out of, you know, I loved being a sort of daily news newspaper photographer, but I knew that I wanted to travel and I knew that I wanted to create my own stories and I knew I wanted to do big long form projects. And that was going to mean that I had to, I had to show proof of concept that I could find the concept, write about it, create the, the relationships and make something happen over years. And so I did, I did a couple of projects like that while like on weekends and overnight and stuff like that. Uh, and that allowed me to sort of build a portfolio that could start pursuing places that would put me on for longer periods of time. And then I eventually started traveling internationally and yada, yada. I love that because I think like, having an exit strategy from whatever situation you're in, whether that's an internship or a paper, a job, whatever. Um, I think you kind of have to like make your own path to that. Um, but when you started doing these projects, um, you've described yourself as like a social activist. Uh, but what were some of the things you were looking for in these small projects? I know, understand they must be like, they were probably compared to now very basic, but like, what were some of the things you were looking for, whether that be a trend, a theme, uh, geography, like how close you were to it. Like what were some of the things you were thinking about when you went out to find these little projects or stories you were working on? Um, I was really just going by my gut, which I think is actually really, I mean, I was, I was working in New York, right. Cause it's, I wasn't going to, and I think it's important to sort of, especially when you're starting out to create projects that are close to home so that you don't need a budget to get yourself there. Um, and so you can really sort of create a practice ground for yourself um, one of my very early photography teachers, I did a workshop with in like 2014, Maggie Steber, who's mm-hmm. amazing, wonderful goddess woman, um, who I appreciate very much. She always tells her students to like create a secret garden to like create a, sp- which means like to create like a space where you can experiment creatively, 
where you can push yourself journalistically and where nobody's necessarily looking all your sh- over your shoulder all the time. And so I think without, you know, knowing that, that was kind of what I was doing. I was investigating themes and, you know, people that excited me that I thought were visual, um, that, and, and also trying to find spaces where I, I was going to be personally motivated because nobody cared what I was doing, you know? Um, so my first really important personal project was a story about the Brooklyn dance hall scene and Brooklyn, like young dance hall queens here. And that was something that I, I, I always loved dance hall music. I always thought dance hall queens were beautiful and awesome and fascinating. And I was listening to music one day and I was like, I should do a project about this. I love this. I would love to photograph this. And so I started going to parties and met some really amazing young women who over time let me like start to hang out with them. And we became friends and collaborators in this project. And I spent like years just like after, you know, I would go to work all day with the Wall Street Journal and be photographing like press conferences and politicians and like, you know, businessmen. And then I would like go out to Flatbush at night and like party until six o'clock in the morning with my camera and hang out with these amazing, super talented dancers and musicians then go straight to work in the morning, like delirious and reeking of weed. (laughs) And which I, you know, just was, was just uh, part of the environment, you know, but like, uh, but it was, you know, and it was grueling, like it was really exhausting, but I was like, I have to keep my passion alive. And like, no matter how tired I was, I would get to these parties and these incredible dancers would start going and I would wake up and I was like, right. Like, I'm never not going to want to photograph this. I'm never not going to just be awed by all of this talent and like want to go nuts. And it was, you know, that was a space in which I really, really learned how to control my flash and use light. Right. Which was, has been a very important part of my visual style ever since. Like, and it was, you know, sort of amazing education in trust and collaboration with all of the people in this community who let me in and let me into very intimate spaces. And, you know, and that story over time became, you know, there a lot of complicated and difficult things happen. And the, the main person that I was working with, whose name is Sarah Cross, who is now one of the most sought after dance hall choreographers and teachers in New York City. And she's amazing. And over 10 years later, we're still really close and I'm actually going to see her really soon. Um, you know, but, but like we created a really close relationship. She was eventually shot in a drive-by, you know, and I learned a lot about, you, you know, like how to, how to manage that, how to be a storyteller, but also a friend and that I don't believe in clear, like, you know, that a lot of people will tell you that you have to like separate it and you like can't be friends with your subjects. And I think that is just like colossal bullshit and I feel like like I really don't I really don't buy into it and that project really taught me a lot about that um I don't know if I can say bullshit on your show but I you do. can totally say bullshit on the show okay cool yeah um <laughs> noted I will now become 50% more profane but um <laughs> um so you know that project was super important to me and after working on it for three years um it ended up publishing in Time Magazine which was like I think for me and for, for Sarah also to see her story in, in that publication. I know that that, that was really important to both of us. Like I think we were both like, wow, okay. I feel pretty yeah. validated. What I hear coming through this whole thing uh, is passion. I mean, like you, 
sound like somewhat obsessive that you're literally nine to fiving and then going home, getting dinner or whatever, and then being like, Oh, well back out all literally all night long. Um, do you think, how, how do you like match that when doing an assignment or a project now that is maybe something that's assigned to you or, or like, how do you transfer that passion, I guess, from something that obviously you deeply cared about and found that was from you into something that might come from an editor or might, be more of a commission or something like that is there you know what I'm getting at there oh yeah that's a it's a really hard thing it's a great question because it is so hard to maintain that creative interest and that you know experimentation it's so different when it's your baby versus when it's a job um and I think you know several things are are important to me there one is just collaborating with people who you know, for me, it's really important to work with editors that I know just demand me to work at my best, you know, like fear of failure is a really useful motivator. So if I'm working, like if I'm working with somebody who I know is commissioning me because of seeing the best in me and expecting me to be thoughtful and creative and problem solve and make something special, then I'm terrified of letting them down. So that's one. Two, and Two is probably even much more important than one is we're mostly photographing people and you owe people your best, you know, you, you know, and whether it's, you know, I've been really lucky, I think, to develop series of projects that show editors who commission my work, what I care about and by sort of pitching and creating and doing grant funded projects and, you know, long form projects for magazines and stuff, I've sort of created my lane that I work in, you know, which has a lot to do with, you know, the personal effects of political violence and conflict and migration and, you know, marginalized people uprising to demand their rights. So like, you know, I get a lot of assignments related to the stuff that makes me tick because I'm, I make that work and there's a conversation there. And so, you know, as, as soon as I'm in that zone, I'm super passionate automatically. But sometimes, yeah. you know, I also do a lot of, because I work in those spaces, I do a lot of like anonymous portraiture or like sort of visual problem solving around stuff that's very hard to photograph because maybe you can't get access to the literal thing. Um, and sometimes it's not so upfront something that makes me like fall in love or get really angry or those emotions that are really useful reservoirs to call on when you're making work. Um, and so, you know, and so then it's partly just sort of, okay, thinking of this as an intellectual challenge, not wanting to blow it, not wanting to starve, not wanting people to laugh at me, um, not wanting to be bad, <laughs> you know, all, all of those feelings. great motivators. Useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like eating. I've figured that out over like the last some odd years. <laughs> Paying rent is is good. So, so yeah, but you know, yeah. and also like, I think it's like important to say like, you know, not every assignment, you know, sometimes you're you're given five minutes in an ugly room with somebody who does not want to be photographed and like is, you know, you know, and sometimes you're, sometimes solid is just the best you're going to come out of there with no matter how good you are. And yeah. I don't care who, what photographer and how you talk to, how brilliant they are. Everybody makes some of that work. Not everything makes it to the gram. You know, you, you, you try to, you try to always make, your best photograph in any situation, but sometimes the situation sucks. And so I think that's important for people to 
give themselves a break when that happens too. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like I, the last few months I've kind of coined the term to myself of like, some days this is what you think it is. And some days this is work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, uh, definitely had a few work days lately that you're just kind of like, Oh, okay. Just got to get through this, pay the bills and something exciting will come through, you know, next time or whatever. I think it's also really, this is something that, um, I, I teach a workshop with, um, my dear friend and partner in crime, Daniela Zaltzman, and we've been doing a lot of uh, Zoom workshops this past year and change during pandemic. And something that, you know, I'm always encouraging my students to do as well is like, try to take control of the circumstances, like really try to like, like if you can help it, you know, sometimes you're, you, you get assignments or, you know, your editors like shoot this at noon. And, and I'm like, like, are they also available at five or like 6am when the light is good? Like, is there any reason why this has to suck? And like very often there's literally no reason why it has to suck, except the editor was busy. They asked the subject, the subject said noon. They, they said, okay, noon. And like, you can set yourself up for much more success sometimes than like a quick logistical, you know, there's a lot of like hacks for stuff like that, which I think are useful. Cause sometimes like you were saying, like, if nothing else is inspiring to me about a shoot, like just give me some good light. I know. Uh, at the end of the day, it, like it comes back to what you're saying earlier. Like we think this is all high flute and an art degree, like whatever intelligent stuff. And then like some days it's just like, damn, this is pretty. <laughs> yeah. I'll point my camera at it and make it look really good. And it is satisfying. And it's like, I think uh, when I was leaving college and the few years after I was like, you know, you get in that high flute in like, oh, I've got to be higher and, and more, more educated, more intelligent about the thing I'm doing. And then some, then at some point you realize like, you know, at the end of the day, you're just making pictures of stuff. And like, that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, totally. And I think I also do think it's pretty important to like, you know, what we do is is a trade in addition to an art form. And like, sometimes you're just trying to make something that works however you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so question I, uh, I see in all of your work and, you know, the Ukraine stuff, but everything is you are at times pointing a camera at issues that are, uh, I will say hard to see, I guess, in the sense that like a lot of times there's issues that are, you know, whether it be a border situation, uh, you know, racial issues like Black Lives Matter or now Ukraine, it's like you're pointing at a camera at a thing that is very hard to visualize, which for us in a medium that is not abstract, you know, we're we're painting with an actual tool that only captures what's in front of it. How do you approach those topics and what is going through your mind as you develop like a visual language on a story that might be extremely non-visual? I think it's, for me, it's, all about first of all being curious right like the answer to how to represent the story of anybody else is going to lie with talking to those people and letting them tell you how (laughs) what the story is right so a lot of it is just being curious and being present and like going going into a situation understanding that like we are all ignorant about other people's lives and we need to be really really humble and like you know, that, you know, I can't go in with a preconceived notion. I need, and if I have no idea what to photograph, good, then I just need to ask more questions until like I can sort of collaboratively come up with something that makes sense to say. Right. And that means 
giving things enough time and like, you know, moving sort of slowly and respectfully. So I think that's like a really good starting off point is not expecting myself to know how to say something that might be sort of intangible, but to go in as a researcher and a student and let the, let the situation and the issue and the people involved teach me what the words are and what the images are. Um, so that's, I think, you know, and then the other thing is to be really emotionally present, you know, contrary to what like some schools of thought on, on journalism in general have taught us about sort of like needing to not be emotional. I actually think it's really, really useful to, to let your emotions in, not to cry louder than the person who you're interviewing, please don't do that. But, um, to really think about how it feels and especially in situations where you, where, you know, maybe you can't photograph racism or you can't photograph forced displacement or, you know, you, you, or you're, you're photographing the trauma of something that already happened and you have to figure out a way to convey that. You know, I think if you get in touch with that emotion and start to just keep moving, keep making images, even if you're not sure how literally they represent things, follow the light, follow the gestures, follow like the little details. And then like, it starts to sort of come together, you know? So I think that that's sort of, those are big tenets of my practice. I love it. Um, I, I always find that's like that, that whole, that like never gets talked about. I feel like, or at least not in my circle. It's like, so much of the things we photograph percentage wise in photography is obviously very tangible things very much like you know president speaks about this football game happens here you know portrait of this person um but like and i think it's probably because we're all in that mindset of like well we can't photograph the thing that happened two years ago and i remember uh, i interviewed christopher gregory and he was doing this long project about uh um i can't remember but the surveillance program there, yeah, yeah, Chris is one of my best friends. Yeah, yeah, he's great. So he was, we were talking about the surveillance program. He, uh, he, and he, and how he's researching it, and, and he was like photographing these artifacts, and it was like so interesting to hear, like, how do you visualize something that literally is not visual at all? So, um, I always love talking about that because I think it helps even when you're doing the more tangible stuff, like as I'm sure you do, is like when you're photographing something that is in front of you, you can now kind of think about it in that like reverse engineer it so you can kind of get to that core feeling or emotion. Is that something you see yourself like kind of tapping or drawing on when you do things like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much of that is conscious and how much of that is just sort of reactive, but that's what I think it's so important to sort of go in with an open mind of the photograph that represents this story could be anything. And so anything that sort of catches my eye or, or piques my interest, you know, whether it's a hand gesture or like an object sitting on the table or the way the light's coming in the window or a plant over, like whatever it is, I'm going to ask tons of questions and I'm going to just start collecting these images. And, you know, it's always, you know, it's, or it's very often very surprising things or, or things that come from the conversation where you're not clacking away that that really will will create the imagery and that's why that's why I think it's so important you know to to move slow to be humble to not come in like oh I'm the photographer and I know what the picture is sit over there but to sit there and really have a conversation with somebody because they'll teach you and then you'll be able to make much more interesting photography about the subject right you know I mean yeah. just you know I was thinking about this a lot having you know just come back from Ukraine last week like after the Russians pulled back from the north of Kiev, there has been these scenes of just 
absolutely horrifying war crimes and atrocity, atrocities committed against civilians and the scale of which we are, you know, seeing is broader and broader every day. And we know that, you know, even worse atrocities are literally being carried out as we speak in cities like Mariupol, which, you know, nobody can get into to document, but I mean, this, these are massacres of civilians and a ton of people are in real time trying to do the work of documenting evidence of these war crimes, which involve, you know, photographing some really, really horrifying, you know, mass graves and civilians left executed on the streets. Um, and, and I was doing, uh, I was doing some of that work as well in like the immediate aftermath of the liberation of Bucha and Irpin and Hostomel and all of these cities that are the sort of Northern suburbs of Kyiv. Um, and, you know, and, and I was walking around these places and I believe that it is urgent and it was urgent to photograph scenes that I didn't even want to look at, you know, and I, and I believed, you know, especially being there, the, you know, being among the many journalists that were there in the first day that it was possible to go there and make these images, that there's a real responsibility to document this historically because we are like talking about war crimes and we are talking about honoring and perhaps holding people, holding the Russians accountable for what the crimes have been committed there. But for me, it was also incredibly important to not be so distracted by the worst, most gruesome parts of what we were seeing that I didn't forget my personal ethic on the importance of photographing resilience and photographing the strength and the beauty of the people who were living in that time. Right. And like really trying to keep the balance so that we don't get tunnel vision just on one type of imagery, but that we're creating like a holistic view of all of the parts of this story. And so I think like really trying to sort of, Again, just like I, I feel like I'm like harping on this, and it's probably just because it's something I'm thinking about a lot coming off of this trip. You know, really sort of trying to keep things open in as much as it's possible in your head about what could be important, because especially in a situation that's incredibly violent or incredibly horrific, I promise you, you're not going to know. You're, you're, there's no way you're going to know what what photograph is is most important, whether from an evidentiary perspective or from an emotional perspective or from an inspiring people to do something like give these people what they need. Um, you know, you, it just, it, it might be a flower surrounded by broken glass, you know, from blown out windows. It might be an incredibly graphic image of charred corpses. It might be, you know, the faces of the survivors, it's probably going to be a combination of all of those things, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, I think it's really important to just stay present and like keep making the work. And then you can sort of sort out what, what makes sense later. Yeah. I thought I had similar kind of, I guess not a moral quandary. Like I, I struggle with some parts of the world show less violence to the human body and then other ones don't, you know, like I thought like I was having in my head, I was thinking if this was a Mexican publication, like Mexico notoriously will like have like, you know, gang killings on the front page of their paper or whatever, at least from what I've seen. And so like there, they would like, they would have showed all that. Right. And, you know, maybe not because of the 
governmental situation. But like as far as objectively showing like a dead body, like I feel like that would happen in parts of that world. While in like the United States, I was like, would we show these pictures if it was people from New Jersey or from Florida or whatever? And that didn't make it right or wrong in my eyes, but I was having this conversation in my head every time, every day I'd open up and I'd see AP or Reuters Instagram would have some other dead person um, due to war crimes or, you know, violence or whatever, you know, we'll find out in the future or however they are held accountable. Um, but like this would happen and I'm, I'm kept thinking about like, and then it kind of got not fatigued, but it was just like so much of it. And I, I had the same thought as you did though. It's like, this is so important because like historically, like this is how someone will be held accountable. But at the same point, I'm like, is this evoking the reaction or telling the story the way that needs to be told? Which was when I, you know, looked at your work, it was like you could feel things about the way it felt to be there in addition to just that like dead body, dead body, dead body. You know what I mean? If that all makes sense. Any situation where you have human rights abuses, which, you know, I mean, and this is like the most possible extreme possible example of human rights abuses, you know, but there's many, many others, um, you know, that are, that are important and, and profoundly difficult to figure out how to represent them as well. But I think, you know, I'm really not a big believer in absolutism. I generally think that American media's reluctance to show violence has sort of weirdly desensitized people or like sort of given them a sense of distance from what violence really is, which is really weird because we actually live in a very violent society. The U.S. is an incredibly violent society. And we, I think that people sometimes are like so insulated from it or people, the people in the U.S. who live in communities that are safe or that have not experienced yeah. gun violence, you know, cause we live in this really weird country where like, we have a phenomenon called the school shootings, which is an insane thing that is, in my opinion, a clear reflection of, of all kinds of sickness within our society. It's not normal. It doesn't happen in a lot of other places. Something is wrong with us. Many things are wrong with us. Um, but like, it's like, it becomes almost abstracted and we never, you know, we never see that unless it, unless suddenly it touches home and it's in your community community or unless you live in a community that's being rocked by gun violence all the time which are all over our country too you know you know or other kinds of violence like the opioid epidemic i mean there's there's so much violence in in the u.s and i feel like we we see very sort of stylized and sanitized representations of that violence because it's considered sort of i don't know like inappropriate or you know insensitive to show those images I get it. It's very insensitive to show those images, but it's very, you know, that's because they're happening. Um, and so I tend to think that particularly we, we Americans, which is of course also the culture I can speak on with the most authority ought to be seeing more what violence means, because I think that people need to understand, you know, things like what it means to have tons and tons of guns out there, you know, and, and, and what the, you know, we've seen, for example, that like now in the age when everybody has a cell phone, you know, po police racist murder isn't a new thing, but one of the things that has been changing is that because people have been making cell phone videos of the police 
extrajudicially murdering black men on the streets and the whole world sees it where suddenly, you know, suddenly people that weren't aware of this phenomenon are like, holy shit, this can't stand. Right. And so that yeah. there's a really importance of, of showing what violence means, what racism means, what, you know, all of these human rights abuses mean. Yeah. And I remember at, at my first internship, uh, that was kind of like the problem I ran into. I was in Flint, which is very violent and very, lots of crime. And I'd go and we'd always present this like dumbed down, sanitized, not showing anything version of it. Um, you know, which there's logistical reasons and stuff like that. And I, I just like never it, it, like right then was like a wake up call to me that was like, well, they don't want to actually show this stuff, but like, we'll act like the suburbs, you know, town fair or whatever, like that'll have 47 pictures, but like, you know, someone getting shot in a park, it's like, well, run the police tape photo again, you know, and like, like there, you know, there we go. And like, put it in the police blotter for the day. Um, and it was weird to me cause it's like, well, this seems like an important issue, you know? Um, and then, and conversely, I mean, another issue I have is that I think a lot of times we kind of pick and choose the thing we get mad about or the version of the thing we get mad about. Um, so it's like, you know, like I'm, I don't drink, I'm kind of anti-drug and alcohol in a way. And, and like, I, I think about like all the people who die of drunk driving and that there's like never a story on that until someone gets killed. That's not in that narrative. Um, or it's like gun violence or anything else. And it's like, you know, tons and tons of black kids can get shot to death and nobody cares. And then like a white kid at a school gets shot and it's just like, whoop, we got to change something. And it's like, there's some people in Flint and Chicago and a few other cities that would love to have a talk with you, (laughs) you know, and solve some issues in their County, in their towns. But it's like, but you don't want to have that talk about having to employ people and stuff like that. But totally. um, So it's, it's, I, but I think, I think you're right. I think I a hundred percent agree that it's like, you know, we would self edit the fact that like we, we can't show that kind of violence. We can't show that on the TV, but it's like these people, this other country. Yeah. How about you show that burn up body on nightly news? Like, that's fine. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I think, I think that like, you know, I mean, another example is America's wars, right? You know, we have not been able to show anything but the coffins of returning servicemen for the entirety of the decades that we've been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Like, We've never been able, I mean, you know, amazing dedicated work has, you know, has been done to like show the the impact of that. But like, there's always been severe restrictions on photographing injured and killed servicemen, for example, you know, and like, I think that really insulated the U.S. from understanding, you know, the, the violence that was happening to to our own people let alone the horrific violence that we were, that was being carried out in our names. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a pretty big believer in like people need to be exposed to more of the horrors of the reality of the world, but it can flip over the other way. You know, I think thinking of conversations I've had with friends who are Mexican journalists and, you know, or, Mexicans or people living in that part of the world will tell you that they feel like the people have been becoming incredibly desensitized from seeing absolutely gruesome cartel executions on the front of the tabloids every single day for years. Right. You know, they, or not every single day, but frequently, right. You know, that 
also will, will flip the other way and start to make people get so sort of inured to that type of violence that it's hard to care anymore. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, and this is the case with so, I think pretty much everything in documentary photography, the answer isn't that there's some easy rule that you can follow and then you're, you're doing it right. It's not never show it. It's not always show it. It's really think carefully about how you're making the imagery, who will be educated, who could be hurt. You know, I, I personally, like, I do think that like the world is a tough place and we can't just like protect everybody from seeing traumatic imagery unless like maybe we should stop doing war and then we won't have to see civilians being murdered, you know, like I, that is an alternative solution. You know, like, I don't, like, I think that's, like, it's, you know, I get it, like, you know, but I also think we need to be very careful about, like, the power of these images and the harm that they can do and really think about how we're using them. But, you know, I feel like journalism, you know, this is part of one of the massive reckonings that's happening in photojournalism. And I think journalism at a whole, as a whole right now is that there are just not going to be easy rules that we can follow that, you know, okay, always do it like this or never do it like that. And there's a handbook, you know, I think that was especially simple in the era of journalism, which is changing now where every single thing was made by like an upper middle class to like elite white man who was not part of the majority of the communities that they were covering and was told to just keep a total distance and not, you know, and then like, if you just make all of those rules and then never for like outsider parachute journalism, then maybe it seems really simple, but you know, as journalism is realizing that it needs so many different kinds of voices and it needs so much more representation within all of the communities that it's covering. And that it basically needs to flip itself on its head and figure its life out urgently. Yeah. I think it's coming with a lot of other conversations, which is that like, you can't always be objective. You can't always be outside. You can't always have just like strict black and white rules for these things. Cause that's not, we're, we're dealing with real life and real life is super messy. And unfortunately it's not going to follow a handbook. Yeah. And while making these super educated and very intense decisions, you should do it all in $250 a day. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's such a complex situation. It goes right back to like what we're talking about. And this is like, or a lot of my frustration with photojournalism has come over the last few years. It's like, as it gets more nuanced, more intelligent, more thought out, uh, more important as the world becomes more visual, um, sadly, the sustainability of it financially for either someone from like an urban community that does not come from a privileged background or even someone who has a college degree and has to pay that back. Like it's it's very difficult to find a way to do this and make it financially sustainable, which is um, incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I do vehemently believe that nothing in journalism is, is going to be fixed until we, well, there's some, I mean, until we sort out our labor issues, our racism issues and our colonialism, colonialism issues, like all together, <laughs> all of that, you know, but, but I do think that like, it's, you know, I mean, the, the way that journalists are being asked to operate a great financial and personal risk to themselves in the middle of sorting out these incredibly difficult issues is, you know, it's a lot, but I, I chose this problem. I, I did it. So I'm yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, we, we made this bed and now we're all lying in it. Um, 
what's what is this has been the, like maybe one of the more academic issues of this podcast, <laughs> which is really fun. I I went to like a very fancy photo school, and I usually just talk about like camera shit to kids that ask me like what camera I should buy. Um, clearly Canon. Uh, yeah, Canon. Banner, banner behind oh, my shoulder. Yes. Uh, both of us are big Canon supporters, but uh. What what is next for you or what is on your front burner right now that you are excited about um, or maybe something recent that's like really been exciting to you? Obviously, you just went to Ukraine and we talked about that a bit, but like um, I love to look forward a little bit more in this. And what what are you working on now? <laughs> right now, I'm working on sleeping and eating and exercising because I just got back from Ukraine and that's all I can actually get my head around which is not a great answer but um i no, no, but I, mean, I think that i think that's super important though like because you were doing I, I mean i'm like a big guy i'm 6'3 270 i'm very american in my weight and height um and like part of my decision in like like some people like ask like are you going to ukraine which like obviously the answer is no but like part of that decision is your health and fitness and your mental health and fitness. So what are you like, how, how, how would you prepare for that trip and how are you decompressing from that trip? Because I think that's really important. I mean, um, I made the decision to go in about 24 hours. So, uh, I did not particularly prepare, but of course I have covered a lot of, uh, hostile environment type of situations in my career and covered a lot of the type of conflicts for lack of a more a better word in Latin America. This is my first time covering a conflict like this. Um, but you know, I mean, in terms of preparation, uh, you know, I've taken, I think five HEFAC courses in, over the course of my career with places like the IWMF, which is wonderful at preparing women and um, the DART Center and a few other organizations. So I do think that like that, you know, if you're asking like what's, you know, sort of fundamental preparation for going to a place like Ukraine, like please dear God, have have a HEFAC training. Don't, don't go there. Like, like really, really please please do not go there if you don't have a first aid, get like a trauma first aid kit and know how to use it and have a reasonable expectation that if you're rolling with somebody, you could help them if they're bleeding out. Um, you know, I think that that is sort of like a fundamental, um, you know, so I think that like in terms of preparing for a situation like that, it is really about like being trained and again, being humble, asking the right security questions, creating a team of people that, you know, whether, you know, whether you're on assignment or not, I'm not going to get into saying, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people out there with staff jobs or, you know, with assignments saying don't ever go anywhere unless you have an assignment. And I'm not really willing to say that completely because I think that that's not actually how the industry works right now. And so it's not really fair to freelancers, which is the majority of our industry to say like, you know, you should never go anywhere without an assignment. I just like the, that's nice, but like literally everybody is freelance. And the reason that it's like that way is because the, the media companies that are multi-million dollar conglomerates are not prioritizing having staff. And so yeah. the risks fall on our heads. Um, and a lot of them are doing amazing jobs at, you know, ensuring us and protecting us and having us have security advisors and having us be well equipped when we are on assignment. But, and then I'm super grateful for my clients to doing exactly that in this situation. 
Um, but like, anyways, I think that that's like a, it's just a complicated issue because I hear a lot, I hear that a lot. And I think what, I, what I wish people were saying a little bit more is you need to be seriously well-trained and trying to think about going to these places, you know, as ethically and prepared and carefully as possible and not turning yourself into a liability or a weight on resources that don't need people burdening their resources right now. So, and then in terms of self-care and recovery, I mean, the other things that I think are really important is, you know, protecting your mental health and, and knowing, and knowing the signs and I just, especially in terms of working in situations like this, which are inherently very, very stressful and knowing yourself well enough and being conversant in like the kinds of ways that working in a very dangerous place and working in a very traumatic place can affect you psychologically. Not per- like, I don't, you know, if you, if you want to go get P- PTSD and fuck your head up, that's your problem. Where it stops being your problem is if you become danger to yourself and others, because you're not responding to things well, and you're not understanding how your brain is being affected. Or when you become somebody that's, you know, we in our jobs ask people to share the worst moments of our lives and we are invading people's space during incredibly dangerous and traumatic moments in their lives. And so if you don't know how to take care of your mental health and you don't understand mental health, let alone physical health, then you can't keep other people safe physically or mentally. And then you're, you know, whether, you know, so I think having that understanding is really, really important so that you can work gently and respectfully and without putting people at physical or emotional risk. Um, yeah. And that is my, that is my tirade for the day. I I have more stay tuned. (laughs) No, I love it. I think, uh, I think it's just like, I I love hearing you talk about the freelance aspect and I totally agree that it's like, yeah, they have, they have decided to strip away all the staff positions and then rely on us and then yeah, tell us not to do things and stuff like that. Um, but I do think there is an importance in having a purpose and safety plans and all those things in place. And it, and while, uh, Natalie is talking and you obviously speaking to the audience, Natalie is talking about Ukraine or a war or something like that, which is obviously when this probably comes up most, but that also applies to something like a hurricane or storm damage or situation like that. Like I know personally, I've covered several major storm damage situations now, and I always make a point to just have water and gasoline and like some of those basics because i know that town probably doesn't have that stuff and it has always been true it's always been true that there isn't any food um there's not the gas pumps aren't working and the one that does is like literally has a line because people are trying to fill generators to like keep something going to either stay safe or eat or work or you know emergency crews um so uh, this this does apply to what she's talking about. It obviously applies to something that might be more pertinent to a local journalist or someone who's at a lower tier of the industry or, you know, a different stage rather. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that that is the most important. Like what I care about is, you know, I don't care who you're working for. I hate that conversation. Like we all hate that conversation. Like I, I care that you're not a danger to yourself or others, because if you get yourself in trouble, then somebody's going to have to save your dumb ass. And like, uh, yeah, exactly. and you know, and that means, you know, if you get, you know, if you get stuck by the side of the road in a hurricane and the rescue crews have to come get you and they should be bailing somebody's grandmother off of their roof, like 
that really sucks from an ethical standpoint, you know, it's, it's so that so having the sort of training and resources to not become a burden. And then also just, just to understand, you know, I think we, everybody says like, don't go to disaster situations to build your portfolio. And I wholeheartedly agree with that, with the caveat that we all make work in these disaster situations. And so I think it's really important to be honest with ourselves and everybody else. And this is something that I've been talking about a lot lately, that like photojournalism is not saving the world. It's not like it is an important practice and we need to document history and we need to do it well. We need to do it ethically and we need to do it responsibly. And I think trained people need to do it all over the world. But like, if you don't go to wherever it is that you want to go, nothing bad is going to happen to anybody because there's one less photographer there. Right. Yeah. So like, I feel like having your head screwed on straight about the fact that like, okay, people are making this work in a certain sense because they want to, do we, do we also hope that it helps? Yes. Do we like feel really inspired by a humanitarian crisis and do, you know, do, do, is it sort of our way of, of trying to help totally, but it's not like purely altruistic work. It never is. And I think that starting there and understanding that a lot of this work is somewhat selfish or has a selfish component is a really good way to protect yourself against starting to think that it's just automatically good to go somewhere and make pictures because then I feel like you let yourself off the hook for all of the reckoning that you have to do with the fact that this whole thing is an ethical quandary and there is no photography that's not somewhat exploitative unless you're taking a selfie. You know what I'm saying? So like, I think we have to start from the point of understanding the inherent problematicness of our whole industry and then yeah. work back to make sure that we're, we're doing it in a way that does no harm and really holding ourselves to really high standards by understanding that photography doesn't automatically help. In fact, it can automatically hurt as easily it can, as, it, as it can automatically help. It's all about how you do it. So you need to have a real long and continuing conversation with yourself about where you are at on that scale and constantly be trying to do your best. I agree with everything you said. And I actually, on a completely unrelated tangent of that same core value is that these multi-million dollar, billion dollar corporations are on hiring us. And I think they all feed off that mindset that we are saving the world, which is, in my opinion, instilled from colleges um, or books or movies or I don't know what. But in me, it was college. And I'm not saying that the professors did anything wrong. Um, but there was definitely like this trained mindset that like we are the eyes of history and blah, blah, blah. And it's like whatever. And that's there is truth to that in some regard. And I, I don't wholly disagree with that statement. Obviously, we were literally in this podcast. We're talking about some of the historical things we're documenting for war crimes and stuff. But God, oh, God, is it like exactly what Natalie just said about why you should or shouldn't go. Maybe that should be part of the conversation. But also it's like when they ask you to do basic slave labor because it's like changing the world, like I assure you it is almost certainly not. It's like it's just to clear somebody's bottom line by one more percent or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm having a constant crazy conversation in my head about this, like where I'm arguing with myself and like, feeling great about the work and feeling terrible about the work and like, you know, thinking 
maybe this could help and thinking that this is all just inherently so flawed and messed up. And while that process is not at all fun or comfortable, I don't really think that there's any other way to be doing this work thoughtfully or ethically than to have that conversation constantly. Cause there's no point where you get to the right answer. You just need to be constantly checking yourself and trying to do it better. Um, yeah. And yes, uh, a lot of that falls on our shoulders because it's not always being carried by multi-million dollar media companies. Although I will, I will say that like, you know, I really appreciate what, like, you know, I feel like I've been really, really lucky to work with editors that, that really are trying to do, to do that work as well, you know, who are like, you know, and like, I think like some of the sort of structural problems really go up to the top and, you know, and and are way, way out of the control of like the people that commission me and collaborate with me. And I'm sure that that's what, you know, I mean, you know, like thinking about like someone like Paul Moakley at Time Magazine, who I was working with super closely uh, throughout all of the assignments that I photographed for Time in Ukraine, who, you know, was really just so present, like as a human being and, you know, consulting on security and also, you know, I mean, you know, was a person that I could call crying, which I did, you know, and, 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 and who (laughs) calmed me down and supported me emotionally and stuff. And, you know, people like Mallory Benedict, I worked with a lot or I work with a lot at, at National Geographic who, you know, she and I are in constant conversations about, ethical and empowered representation and, you know, how to do photography better, you know? So like, I think that there's a lot of people industry-wide that are really, really trying to figure out ways to make this work more helpful and less harmful. Although the structure is often pretty against that. Yeah. I think like there's definitely like, if we're at the bottom rung, they're at the second bottom rung. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like we're Sucks. in this lower tier team. Um, and I'm not, yeah, there's a lot of great people in this industry doing the right things, but man, uh, I just, I think a lot of times there's someone at that tier that has to be the messenger of like, whatever the bad situation. And, and I think, I think we, it's more like inside yourself. Like you're thinking like, if I do this assignment, they will like me or like they, you know, I mean, or I will have solved the problem or whatever. Uh, and I think like that is not the way to come to a business discussion of any kind, you know? And, uh, yeah, really it sure isn't. And that's, that's what this is at the end of the day, which I think it's lost on some people. Uh, you can tell that my dad was in business, (laughs) (laughs) uh, in some degree, at least, I don't know. He's an engineer. So, but, uh, he talks a lot of numbers when I was a kid about like risk management, on riding that bicycle without a helmet, what's the risk management on that? You know, so oh, yeah, I mean, I need more of that voice in my it. life. I don't understand anything about financial <laughs> risk management whatsoever, or I would not be here having this conversation right now because I would have done something else with my life. That's right. Oh man, um, this has been a blast. Uh, I, I I have three questions that I kind of end every interview with. They're kind of by design, open ended and silly. Uh, but I hope that you take them whichever direction you want to take them. Um, the first one is what is a lesson or something that you wish you, that you know now that you wish you learned a lot earlier in your career? Ask for more money. Ask for more money. Ask for more money. Um, <laughs> I would say the same like, thing. <laughs> when somebody asks you to do an assignment, 
there is one circumstance in which the rate is non-negotiable. And that's like, you know, newspapers and magazines usually have a set day rate. But they also usually cover things like rentals and assistant budgets and travel days and digital fees and all of these things. And if it's not an editorial assignment, then just ask for 150% of whatever they offer you and always get them to give you a number first. And this is because you want to someday be able to have a savings account and maybe even not live paycheck to paycheck and almost always people are not offering all that they can or would pay you if you ask for more and ask for better contract terms, change your contracts. Don't ever, don't ever, 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 ever sign work for higher contracts. And don't worry that your clients will like you less if you ask for these things because they will think you are a professional and a grown up and you can say it and be polite with it. You don't, it doesn't make you rude to assert yourself as a business person. Yeah. Uh, I love all of those things. Everyone should do exactly what Natalie just said. <laughs> those are great. Um, the second question is, what is something, uh, whether it's a trinket or a piece of gear or something that you have to have with you on every assignment? A trinket or a piece of gear. I mean, you know, um, Anything, I, I mean, uh, my, my, my cameras, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm like not much of a gearhead, but I am incredibly grateful uh, Canon Explorer of Light. Um, and so I, I do like always want to shout them out cause they really support my work. And, um, these days I'm shooting a Canon SR and a Canon R5 and I don't leave home without them. And yeah, I'm, you know, other than that, I, uh, like I, I try to have like a really small camera backpack because I don't like to carry a lot of crap with me because I think it slows me down and I think it's better to be fast and light. Yeah. I just um, customized, uh, I just like made this. I'm holding it up for Natalie, but it's a Gorok GR1, which is like a kind of like uh like special forces kind of design little backpack. And I put a camera cube in it because it's like way lighter and smaller and less camera baggy looking. So I totally agree. I hate I hate the I hate the big bulky like I like a good roller. If I'm going to something and I gotta work out of it all day, that's one thing. But like if I'm gonna like run around and like do stuff, I love like a really lightweight camera bag. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last question is, uh, this podcast is listened to by photo editors, college students, uh, people looking to get into photography and a bunch of industry professionals, uh, like Ben, uh, and, uh, thank you for recommending me for this, Ben, you're the best Ben Rasmussen, one of my favorite photographers and really, really cool guy. Hands down on my top list of photographers. Um, what is one, what is one thing that you'd like to leave them all with, whether that be like a soapbox talking moment, a point of inspiration or a life lesson or anything you'd like them all to hear? Oh my gosh, that's so open-ended. I don't know how to answer that. That's, yeah, that's, it's an interviewing tip. You ask very open-ended questions and people get to take it their own direction. Or they get terrified and crawl under the bed and hide. That's also totally acceptable. That happens on most of my jobs. Um, okay, um, let's see. What do I want people to take away from this? If there's any like one group of people that I like want to talk to the most, it's probably like young, young photographers starting out for those folks, you know, it's another, it's just something that I like really wish that I had learned sooner. I think it would have been like, like just the whole, like figuring out my space in this industry would have been like a less tortured process. I think that like the way nobody gets into this business for the money. So you might as well do what you truly love and like not, not chase the pictures and not chase the projects that 
you think other people will like, or that you think if you make them, people will think you're good, but to like really dig into stuff that you personally actually care about and like really stick with things long-term and learn from them and, you know, try to make this, this practice as collaborative and as much of a give and take rather than like a, you take and take, which is honestly like what it's set up to be if we don't fix it. So I think that like really sort of thinking and always pushing to try to make this work gentler and more collaborative and understanding that contrary to the sort of competitive structure that we've been sort of placed in that, you know, that's, that's the way to make something really special out there. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's a useful message, it's kind of abstract, but I've been thinking about that a lot. I love more of the abstract than the tangible on this whole episode. This has been super fun. I think, um, I think photography is really easy to talk about in like a brass tax or a tangible way. So I think it's for me, at least very refreshing and revitalizing to hear it talk about in a more abstract way that can apply in different situations. And to the listeners, there's obviously tens of hundreds of years listening to this. So, <laughs> um, and they will hear it in their own, from their own viewpoint, which would be really exciting to hear back on how it affects them. Yeah. I'm so. curious. They think I'm insane. They're probably gonna be like, that girl needs to sleep. You can tell that she hasn't sleep, slept and she's delirious. Um, but, uh, and also you're so glad we didn't talk about like tangible brass tacks because you would quickly realize that like, I have no idea what I'm doing technically. I mean, I, I do, I but it. I don't like, I, I, I never, whenever people are like, what settings do you use? And I'm like, yeah, like it's very instinctive. I don't remember the numbers. So I love that's one of my favorite things about photography is like I, I was in college and like, you know, there I felt like there was like two crews of like photography students in school and it was like 50 to 60 percent like tech, you know, and like camera and like the lab. And we were like making prints and like doing all this stuff. And there was another like 20 percent that was like totally out there art people. And there was like the 10 percent that was in between. And then when you leave school, all of a sudden I realized that all these super achieved and amazing photographers were like yeah i don't know man i just like use this lens because it looks cool and this one over here because it like zooms and that's nice and i was like those are my people yeah yeah and i was like okay wow yeah i should probably not worry about this stuff as much as i did uh in college but all right so um last question is uh where can people find you where can they find you to hire you follow you and uh maybe bounce some ideas off you if possible um thanks yeah i'm uh i'm at Natalie Kesar, N-A-T-L-I-E-K-E-Y-S-S-A-R. Um, I'm on I'm on all the internets, but mostly Instagram. Please, dear God, email me if it's about business. My DMs are a black hole, uh, and I frequently miss them for weeks. So, um, and just everybody in general, please, dear God, email if it's about business. Don't DM. I mean, you can. I'll appreciate it anyways, but it's chaos. Um, and I have a website, which I haven't updated in 112 years. So you can look at my photography there, but I, I wish you would go to Insta until I sort that out. And um, to all of my students who know that I tell them not to do that, I still am telling you not to do that. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, that's a, a pretty running trend. If, if you're actually working, then you never update your site. So therefore, it's like a, the... It's like the bane of success or something like, oh, I'm doing work. So therefore, I can't show you the work that I'm doing. So go look at this work from two years ago to please hire me, though. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly that one. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Um, yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. This was a very cool conversation. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com slash reciprocity podcast to support the show. 